Welcome to The Sad Bastard. I'm your host, Dave Tarnowski. For those of you who don't know, the name of this podcast has its origins in a meme I made a couple years ago. I took a still from an old interview with Nick Cave and added a fake subtitle that shows him saying, I'm not a big fan of the goth label. I much prefer sad bastard music. I had first heard that phrase uttered by Barry, a character played by Jack Black in one of my all-time favorite movies, High Fidelity. Barry works at a record store owned by Rob, played by John Cusack, and on this particular day, he storms in, full Jack Black, unhinged style, and Rob and Dick, another employee, are listening to some super morose music by Bell and Sebastian. Barry immediately takes the tape out of the stereo and inserts his own, and Katrina and the Waves classic Walking on Sunshine blares from the speakers. Rob screams at Barry to turn off the intensely upbeat music, but Barry is already dancing around the shop with glee. Rob turns off the music, and Barry is instantly deflated. Okay, buddy, uh, I was just trying to cheer us up. So go ahead. Put on some old sad bastard music, see if I care. But Rob wasn't interested in happy music. Rob had just been dumped by his longtime girlfriend and just wanted to listen to something that he could ignore. The movie, like the book by Nick Hornby it's based on, is the story of Rob's love life, which is inextricably enmeshed with his lifelong love of music. On this week's episode of the Old Sad Bastard podcast, I want to get into my own story. Koenig made me think of this when he wrote in the other day asking, Why is depressing music so healthy for me? And I really couldn't have related more. There's another line from High Fidelity that is absolutely perfect for the stories I'm about to tell. What came first, the music or the misery? For me, I'm pretty sure it was both at the same exact time. I remember the first depressing song that stirred my feelings was Could Have Been by Tiffany, the girl who did that cover of I Think We're Alone Now. Yeah, that Tiffany. It was 1987, and I was nine years old when I first heard Could Have Been, a song about a lost love that, yeah, you guessed it, could have been so much more. It spoke so clearly to my little old sad bastard soul for some reason. And it was then that I fell in love, not just with Tiffany, with her red hair and alabaster skin and dope brown eyes, and those freckles, oh, those freckles. But no, it wasn't her. It was the song about lost love that I fell for, something I would romanticize about for many years before ever feeling the actual loss of love. I mean, I was in fifth grade, for Christ's sake. Who was I dating? In junior high, my taste in music got a little edgier. MTV was pretty much all I watched at that point, and those were the days of Aerosmith and Guns N' Roses and Motley Crue, all those hair metal bands, and all the hot girls in their videos. But still, it was their sad songs I gravitated towards, the ballads, 
all of these hard rocking bands still had their soft sides, or at least they did for their record companies. As much as I liked the hard stuff, I was always a softie at heart. High school changed everything, 1991 to 1995. Incredible years for music, especially of the sad bastard variety. Pearl Jam's 10 and Nirvana's Nevermind came out right around when school started in 91, and grunge was everywhere. It was all sad and all plaid all the time. I was in heaven, with the music I mean, but I did come to love the plaid. Pearl Jam really got me right by my sad bastard heart, especially with their song Black. I had no fucking clue what Eddie Vedder was singing but it was impassioned, it was pained. And at 14, I had no words for how impassioned and pained I felt about fucking everything, nor what I had to feel such a way about. I can clearly remember sitting at my desk in my room with my boombox and a pad and pen, trying to decipher the lyrics. They didn't come with a cassette, and this was decades before you could just Google stuff. I would start the song, pause it, rewind, start again, but I never got all the words. But it didn't matter. Just like another song of theirs from that era, Yellow Led Better. It was all about Eddie's vocal instrument and the gorgeous music that accompanied it. It didn't matter that when Eddie sang it sounded like Anna Cole, Anna Say, Anna Woe, Anna Hey, Anna Cole, again. Whatever the fuck. It was beautiful. I was transported to another realm by the feelings it produced inside me. I was carried away on clouds made of delicate guitar riffs and a voice filled with longing. Longing for something more. Longing for love. High school was when I was exposed to most of the music and most of the bands I would listen to for many years to come. A lot of them to this very day. It's a bridge between my life and all those years. The music. To go back to High Fidelity, there's a great scene where Dick stops by Rob's apartment, and Rob is in the middle of rearranging his record collection. Dick inquires how he's doing it. What is it, chronological, he asks, looking at the piles of records all over the place. Rob says no. Not alphabetical, Dick discerns. Nope, Rob says. Finally, Dick asks, what? Autobiographical, Rob says. Now, I'm not as much of a music geek as the guys in the story are. Close, but not quite. But when Rob says autobiographical, it just clicks with me in such a profound way. I can't think about my life without also thinking about the music I had been obsessed with at the time. My high school years were also when I would fall completely and utterly in love with the band that would solidify my love for some seriously somber shit. The Cure. My best friend at the time, Tim, exposed me to a ton of great music. But the best thing he ever did was introduce me to the majesty that is disintegration. Now. I grew up with two older brothers, and they had this friend Larry who loved The Cure. 
They gave him so much shit about it that I ended up having a sort of natural aversion to even thinking about them, let alone being curious if I might like them. Plus the songs I did know, their singles, especially Friday I'm In Love, I just didn't like. So when Tim asked me if I liked The Cure, I was just like, uh... And he said, trust me. He popped in a tape and sat back with a very pleased look on his face. The look of someone who knows they're about to introduce someone to something that is going to change their life forever. The soft bells that opened plain song, the first song on disintegration, began to chime. And I looked at him quizzically as if to say, what the fuck is this? He put his finger over his lips to tell me to be quiet and suddenly there was a crash of cymbals and the speakers exploded with the most glorious wall of sound made of bass, drums, synthesizers, guitar that slammed into me with such force that I surely would have been knocked over had I not been sitting down, especially considering how baked I was at the time. If there were ever a moment in music that sounded like a big bang, the beginning of everything, this was it. And then about a minute later came this slow, twangy guitar riff, slithering through the din as if it had wandered in from another song entirely. And it slid straight into my chest and coiled itself around my heart. I looked at Tim in disbelief. And he just nodded and smiled and put his head back and shut his eyes. I followed suit. And about another minute later, I heard Robert Smith's voice for the first time. I hadn't truly been in love yet by that point in my life. Not to the point where the loss of that love would feel like something inside me had died. But I felt every bit of the pain I heard in Robert Smith's voice. Soft eternally sad, echoing through the air like a mournful prayer, a longing for something right there but at the same time a million miles away, unreachable, unknowable. I felt seen perhaps for the very first time in my life. This was the feeling I had been experiencing since I was a little kid. This was the longing I felt. Was it a longing for love or for heartbreak? I had been writing fiction for several years by that point, all about star-crossed lovers and heartache and despair, and it felt like The Cure were suddenly providing a soundtrack to the movies in my mind, and in turn, my writing became more and more entwined with sad music. It wasn't until years later when I started listening to The Cure's first albums and discovered the true holy grail of sad bastard music pornography. There isn't a word to truly describe this album. My favorite of all time. Bleak, dark, despairing, depressing. It is the complete absence of light. It's a bit much for most, and I wasn't ready for it at the time. Nine Inch Nails would prepare me for the darkness. It was 1995. I was 17, and I'd never had a girlfriend, nor had I had sex. It was basically a walking penis with two extremely throbbing blue balls. I was immensely, intensely frustrated. 
I had crushes on girls that were mostly never reciprocated, though most of them I just assumed weren't, since I rarely felt able to ask them out of fear of rejection. So I just rejected myself for them. I felt like such a loser and I hated myself. And then Trent Reznor came along and was like, here's an album for that. The Downward Spiral, the album that would spawn their most famous songs, Closer and Hurt. You know, a song a lot of people annoyingly think Johnny Cash wrote, but actually just covered. This album became my soundtrack for the next year and change, along with its predecessor, Broken. These were ugly songs, angry songs, and again, I felt seen by them. They were exactly what I needed at the time. My obsession with songs about love and heartbreak, and those feelings in general, was now married to the seething hatred of love gone wrong. Then a year later, I found a new love that was unlike any other, Morphine. A band that would make some of the most exquisite, sad, and mad bastard music during their all-too-brief time together, and with a sound entirely of their own. The band leader, Mark Sandman, sang with the deepest, coolest voice I had ever heard, and played instruments of his own design, the main one being his signature two-string slide bass that acted quite like a combination of a bass and a guitar. Then there was Dana Colley, Mark's musical partner, who played baritone sax that was often combined with a tenor sax to create the aptly named double sax which the man would play individually and simultaneously, both mouthpieces in his mouth throughout. Rounding out the trio was Billy Conway, the perfect drummer to keep time with these two gods. They were groovy and sexy and fun, but they were also sad and deep and, because of Mark's lyrics, often deeply personal. Their albums were incredible, but seeing them live was where the real magic of morphine would be on display. I was very fortunate to have gotten to see them like a dozen times or so. They were based in Boston and weren't a big band by any means, so they were constantly touring small clubs on the East Coast. And living in New York at the time, I jumped at the chance to see them every time they came around. Mark Sandman was funny as hell live in his laconic way. His songs were often cryptic and filled with deep meaning for him, pulled directly from his life. One of my favorite moments during one of the many shows that I attended was when they were playing a song called Radar. The band pauses and Mark says, If I'm guilty, so are you. It was March 4th, 1982. Then he takes an extra pause before saying to the audience in his deadpan comic timing, You know, a lot of people ask me what that line means, and I tell them all the same thing. It's personal. And then they get right back into the song. Fuck, I missed that man. He collapsed on stage from a massive heart attack after the second song of what ended up being the last morphine concert ever, dying en route to the hospital. This was July 2nd, 1999. He was 46 years old. That's just four years older than I am right now. 
His death affected me more than any other death had in my life. He felt like a friend, an older brother I wished I'd had instead of the ones I did. One of my prized possessions is a frame containing the last two ticket stubs I have left. The others lost during the many moves I've made over the past 21 years. One from a show at Webster Hall on April 17, 1997, and the other from a show at Bowery Ballroom March 27, 1999, just over three months before Mark died. The first love of my life, Kat, was with me at the Webster Hall show. She was a big fan herself, and morphine was a bit of a soundtrack to our relationship, and certainly our breakup particularly the song Gone For Good off their 1997 album, Yes. Unlike most Morphine songs, the lyrics are quite straightforward, but also it's just Mark's voice, and it's most wistfully mournful. And quite uncharacteristically, he plucks gentle notes on a regular acoustic guitar. It's a simple song, but it breaks my heart every fucking time especially when my heart is already broken from losing someone, which has happened more than a few times since then. It's been a pretty constant presence in my ears and my heart and soul over the last four months since my wife and I decided to part. It's a song about all the different things he was never going to be able to get to do with this woman who didn't love him anymore, like write her a letter call her on the phone, drive by her house and see her coming outside. But the biggest moment of regret, and the part that gets me every time, is the ending, where his voice lifts and he sings, Never gonna walk up your walk and ring your bell and feel you fall into my arms. I'm never gonna see you again You're gone for good Even if you do see someone after a breakup Even if you do write them or talk to them or Call them on the phone The person you were with The one who you were completely and madly in love with And was in love with you that person is truly gone for good. The human being is alive, and you can both care for each other in a new, different way. But what you once had together lives only in memories. The loss of Cat devastated me. This was late 1999, and the soundtrack to the aftermath of that breakup was my old favorites, Nine Inch Nails. The Fragile had just come out a couple of months before, and I listened to it non-stop. It was a double album, so there were plenty of sad songs for me to cling to for dear life, particularly one about letting go and allowing grief to take you into its arms, The Great Below. In it, the protagonist has gone through so much grief he decides to drown himself.
I wanted to disappear after Kat told me she didn't love me anymore. I wanted to die. It took me the better part of a year to get over Kat. During that time, I delved deep into my old favorites to cure, finished nails, morphine, and new favorites like Radiohead. The Benz and OK Computer were full of incredible sad bastard music that immersed my soul in love. To quote the closing song on the Benz, Street Spirit. And Beck, whose album Mutation sued me in ways most albums never had. Then in 2000, The Cure released Blood Flowers, which for me was my current era's disintegration. The title track swept me away into that old love and heartbreak obsession, and I started to believe again. I started to hope. And then I met the woman who would become my first wife, Lisa, and I was happy again. I fell in love. Or rather, I dove into it headfirst. I was 22 when we met, 23 when I moved from New York to Chicago to be with her, and two months later we were married. I was happy. But I was still no less of a melancholic motherfucker. We never connected on the music level. She hated Radiohead, who were my absolute favorites throughout our relationship. Nor did she like Nick Cave. The feeling was mutual, as far as disliking what she listened to. She was mostly into Prince. And when I say she was into Prince, I mean she was a charter fucking member of the Prince fan club. She went to the yearly celebrations that he threw at his home, Paisley Park. She was best friends with people who worked for him. It was a level of fandom that I had never witnessed firsthand. And I felt left out because, well, I wasn't too big on Prince myself. I've come to appreciate him over the years, but he was just too upbeat for a sad bastard like me. What Lisa and I had in common was we loved to get stoned, fuck, watch TV and movies all the fucking time. And that was enough for me for a while. And the years we were together, 2000 and 2008, were great for sad bastard music, especially for my favorite bands. And many of these songs helped me through things to come. In 2002, Beck put out one of my all-time favorite top 10 just mind-blowing albums of all time, Sea Change. A sad bastard masterpiece, every song is sublime. But the first track, The Golden Age, contains a single chorus that explained how I felt every single day of my life. These days I barely get by, I don't even try. They spoke to a part of me that was never happy, the part that was always just getting by day to day but didn't know where it was ultimately going. The part that was always threatening to suck me in no matter how okay I seemed. Lisa and I were happy, but personally I was miserable. I hated Chicago and I missed home. I hated my job but felt stuck. That album sat in my heart for years and it still does to this day. Towards the end of the marriage, at least the last year, I knew things were going to end. We had stopped having sex, were getting mean with each other, barely spending time together. But we were married, and that didn't feel easy to leave. It felt bigger than just a relationship. 
Plus, I was a thousand miles away from home. And quite frankly, I was a coward. I'm terrible at being my own advocate. I'll stay in something I know is wrong instead of being alone with myself. I'm trying to change that these days. The fear of speaking up about things I wanted, of setting boundaries for myself and being my own advocate, these have always been the hardest things for me to do. Don't rock the boat, Dave. You'll lose them if you do, I told myself. Then in 2007, Radiohead came out with their masterpiece in Rainbows. It featured a song on there that had been kicking around for 10 years being played live often, originally called Big Ideas, but officially released as Nude. It really struck a chord with me because I had been thinking of cheating, of leaving of feeling something other than miserable. And sometimes a song comes along as if dropped from the heavens for when you need it most. I felt that happen with Nude just like I felt it happen with the rest of the songs I want to talk about. Early in 2008, just three months before Lisa and I split, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds released Dig Lazarus Dig. Not one of their best, but it brought with it the song Jesus of the Moon, a song I very much needed at the time. It's a song about a couple that know the end is near for them, and towards the end, Nick sings, Will it be me or will it be you? One must stay and one depart. And then never failed to hit me and made me cry. In the end, she was the one to depart. I don't know if I ever would have. And then the month after Lisa and I split, back again, came back with Modern Guilt. A mostly upbeat album with a killer sad bastard final song called Volcano that truly summed up the end of our relationship. tried a few times over the next couple of months to see if we could work things out. But in the end, we had to face facts that it was truly over. We were in our old apartment, the one that I was now inhabiting alone. And she was picking up some final things that she had left there. I remember reading the lyrics to her. She just nodded and left shortly after that. I felt bad for doing it, but in a way, I also felt like I was starting to become someone new. I had created a boundary. I was not going to take all the blame for things ending. I wanted her to know, to hear it from me, that she was on the hook just as much as I was. The beautiful thing about sad songs is you never know when they're going to come around when you need them most. And there are two more I need to mention before I wrap things up. 
the first one being another Nick Cave in the Bad Seeds song. In September of last year, Nick Cave announced that a new album, Ghost Teen, would be released in 10 days, causing my heart to fill with excitement, something I hadn't been feeling much over the past. Well, let's just say a while. The only things I had been feeling were deep depression and massive mania mixed with powerful panic attacks. I had been self-medicating with weed all day every day and it was making me worse. This was months before getting diagnosed as bipolar and finding out that essentially I was poisoning myself. Ghostine was a breath of life I desperately needed. Ironic as it was heavily influenced by the death of Nick Cave's son, Arthur, several years earlier. Us Cave fans knew it was going to be a devastating album, but what we got was more devastatingly beautiful than anything I ever expected. It was filled with beauty, hope, and if anything, that had far more of an impact on me than had it been just a straightforward sad bastard album like The Boatman's Call, for instance, or even the bleak predecessor to Ghostine, Skeleton Tree which he had been writing and recording when Arthur died, and you can hear the rawness of grief in his voice through every song. Ghostine is about moving forward, and the song Sun Forest helped me take my first steps towards my new life. I don't like to talk about my second marriage much, out of respect for my wife. I mean, since she is still my wife, we're still married, though separated and living apart. I've been going through a lot of changes over the past year, and I was struggling with the new life I was starting to build, and good things I saw on the horizon, while also mourning the looming death of the life I knew in my heart I had to leave. I felt it coming. Part of me knew it had to come, because I was fighting it. As I said before, I was never good at breaking up, but I was deeply in love with my wife. She was my best friend, which in a way was even harder to lose. I knew her in ways others don't, and vice versa. We felt seen by each other, for better and worse. We comforted each other. We made each other laugh all the time. We hugged a lot. I miss that most of all, especially now with COVID and people hardly touching each other at all. But I would miss her touch even if things were normal. We saw each other's potential, and we encouraged each other to follow our dreams, to step into our power. And I believe that was part of what broke us up. The dynamic changed. We wanted different things. And so we had to let go of the past and embrace the unknown alone. I lay in the forest amongst the butterflies and the fireflies and the burning horses and the flaming trees. As a spiral of children climb up to the sun Waving goodbye to you and goodbye to me As the past pulls away and the future begins I say goodbye to all that as the future rolls in Like a wave, like a wave And the past with its savage undertow Knowing something I loved and cherished deeply was not right, was dying. And having this song with these most perfect words delivered to me at exactly when I needed them 
made me feel connected to the universe somehow. There wasn't just some small, insignificant speck of dust, but I was seen and felt and empathized with by whatever great force binds us all. And I know these songs aren't mine alone, and I hope the right songs also reached everyone else who needed them. There's one more song I need to mention. One more album, I should say. Fast forward to this past summer, the life I had known for the last seven years now officially over. And Phoebe Bridgers, one of my new favorite artists, releases her second album, Punisher. Everyone who knew what I had been going through told me, no, don't listen to it yet. It's simply too devastating. I'd heard the first two singles, Garden Song and Kyoto, and thought, how devastating could it be? They were nice songs, but they didn't make me feel anything like, say, Ghostine did. But I waited anyway, just in case. I hadn't been in much of a music mood anyway right after I moved out. I was staying with my friend Carolyn in Baltimore for a few days, and it had been nice to unplug and explore and get my mind off of things as much as possible. The great thing about visiting somewhere foreign to you when you're sad is it's hard to dwell on your pain when you need to pay attention to where you're going and you want to take in all the new sights. When I got back to DC and checked into my shitty Airbnb, I mean, really shittier than anything you can imagine, I decided, fuck it, let me listen to Punisher. So I walked over to Starbucks and got a coffee and then headed over to Logan Circle little park in a roundabout at the intersection of a bunch of major streets. I sat on one of the benches and listened to the first two tracks, which were the singles I mentioned. And I watched life unfold around me. People walking their dogs, others sitting on the other benches that dotted the circle, still others just passing through. And I felt at ease. I very much enjoyed the tracks I hadn't heard before. The music was sweet and sad, and when it was all over, I sighed and removed the earbuds and smiled. Now that was an excellent album, I thought. But that was only the first listen. You don't get to know a record on the first listen any more than you get to know a person from a first date. The next time I listened to it, and every subsequent time for the next few months, the album would make me cry like a baby painful, racking sobs that I felt through my entire being, body, and soul. Or rather, it helped me cry. It sat with me while I cried and held my hand. And when it would get to the last song, titled, I Know the End, I would absolutely lose it until I had no tears left to cry. like my room 
that's why I've always been attracted to sad songs. I'm a very sensitive person. I suffer from drastic mood swings. Sad songs anchor me when I need to be held in place. They hug me like a friend that understands everything I'm going through. They see me. They validate me. And they save my life time and time again, even if just by helping me through the pain. And friends, I don't believe in coincidences. The songs that were there for me at the ends of my relationships with the three greatest loves of my life are all connected by a single thread. Water. The source of all life. The thing that makes the plants grow. Something you need or you'll die. And something that could absolutely fucking destroy you. Nine Inch Nails, Great Below, is all about letting the ocean and its currents have their say with the forlorn lover's body, washing him away and making him disappear. The arms of Undertow giving him one final embrace. Bex Volcano and Phoebe Bridgers' I Know the End both talk about waves crashing onto the shore, their final destination. The end of the line, there's nothing more to do. But Nick Cave with Sun Forest, for all his gloom and doom, the song feels hope for the future. And instead of being pulled down and drowned by the past, waves of promise push him out of the grasp of the savage undertow. And this is the power of a sad song and the ones that come to you when you need them most. It is there with you where you are and what you decide to take from it is up to you. In the past, I wanted to drown, but not now, friends. I want to swim. I want to live. And not for anyone but myself. I'm riding on a new wave now. And for anyone out there listening who feels like their wave has crashed and has left them shattered, I just want to say this. Rest. Heal and then get back out there and find a new wave. Well, that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast. And follow my Instagram accounts, Nick Cave and the Bad Memes, Sad Peaks, Don Trooper, Mimi Bridgers, and the Sad Bastard Pod. On the Cave and the Bad Memes and Sad Peaks, I do Q&As several times a week where you can tell me what's on your mind, and I might reply to it on a future episode. And you could also drop a DM over at the Sad Bastard Pod. Take care of yourselves, forgive yourselves, love yourselves. And in the words of Mark Sandman, Swim for the shore just as fast as you're able. Swim like a motherfucker. Swim. <laughs>